So just to quickly catch you up, we've been talking about Nehemiah the past couple weeks. And if you, if, this is, if you missed the series, then I was trying to think of a way to quickly get you caught up. If you're kind of confused, um, I just thought a, a quick way to do it would be to play you a song about Nehemiah. Conveniently, my father, who was a songwriter, wrote a song about Nehemiah. So uh, I thought this would be a quick way to get us all on the same page. It moves a little bit fast. So uh, I've got some words up on the screen. That way you don't have to look at me while I'm playing, too. That's convenient for me. Okay. Goes a little something like this. Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer to the king. Now you can't get much higher. That was a pretty big thing. Now one fine day he received some news about the delicate condition of his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. It bothered him and he got them low down blues. Nehemiah, he went to take the king his wine and the king said, me oh my, say you don't look so fine. Now tell me, son, what's the matter with you? If you gotta have a problem, let the king know too Cause I just don't like to see you blue Tell me, do Well, Nehemiah, he knew the Lord was on his side So he looked up to the sky And he shot a prayer up high And he said, king, I hope you're living Till I cease to be around But I feel the need to travel to my former stomping ground So I can help rebuild that town the walls are coming tumbling down. Then the king gave him some letters and a bunch of woolen sweaters just to keep him warm and cozy in the night. And he went across the river and the letters he delivered. It's a mighty handy thing to have a letter from the king. <sighs> Nehemiah, he kept his project totally mum. Cause Sanballat and Tobiah didn't like to see him come. If he builds that town like he plans to do, why we'll be overrun completely by a bunch of Jews and we got too much at stake to lose. So let's attack them while they snooze. The future looking bleaker and the builders feeling weaker and the people saying, man, we're gonna die. Nehemiah said, don't sweat it, give the Lord the proper credit for you know that he is awesome and the fight is gonna cost him. Well, he was quite a guy. You had no idea so many words rhyme with Nehemiah, huh? <clears throat> well, he was quite a guy, and I know he would have loved this song. But the book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. There's moral to the story. We were still on chapter 4. Nehemiah kept his promise and the problems he ignored, and the wall got built from door to door because the people had the joy of the Lord. Now the next time that you try, don't let the skeptics get you down. You just remember Nehemiah, how he rebuilt Jerusalem town. Cause the world's gonna holler, see I knew it wouldn't work. But they said the same to Noah cause they thought he was a jerk. And he built that ark like God told him. Skeptics drowned when they couldn't get in. Keep your eyes on God, not on men. That's all folks, that's the end. So that's what happened in Nehemiah. <laughs> um, yeah. Has anybody heard that song before? Anybody heard that song? What's that? <laughs> On the website. Um, yes. So, um, yeah. So we've been talking about Nehemiah. <laughs> 
And uh, there's a glimpse at the story. There's a lot of dynamics of the book of Nehemiah. And, um, and it, you know, it's interesting. We, we, uh, churches tend to talk about the book of Nehemiah when there's a building project going on. That's kind of how it works. But, you know, when my wife and I bought our first house last year and we did some reconstruction and we talked a lot about our house, you know, that's kind of how it works. You talk about what's going on in your life. And the interesting thing about Nehemiah as an example is that it actually ironically ended pretty bad, right? So if you're looking for like a great example, there's a lot of things that happen good in Nehemiah. But as Dennis and, and Carla have both talked about the past couple of weeks, there are a lot of things that went wrong in Nehemiah. And kind of, you know, I, if I could have a chat with my dad, I'd say like, Dad, you know, it didn't end quite that, you know, neatly. Um, but, you know, you got to fit it into a song, so. Um, but, but, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that have gone wrong, or that went wrong in the book of Nehemiah. And one of the things that both Dennis and Carla have really emphasized and that I want to reemphasize this morning is just that it really doesn't matter if we have a building or not, if our hearts aren't alive in Jesus, if we're not aligned with his will and his purposes and his affection. And so really, all that this is is, is another opportunity to kind of Again, make Jesus the center of everything that we are and do. You guys with me there? I trust you are. I love just, you know, this morning in worship, just coming back to that recentering on Jesus. I just never get old of singing it and getting it deeper into my spirit. And what I want to specifically emphasize around that recentering this morning is what it looks like to be builders in the midst of deconstruction. And this word deconstruction has, it's a pretty heated term right now. It has a lot of ties to postmodernity and to a lot of the journeys that a lot of people are on right now. A lot of people, especially around my age, typically like something happens like if you grow up in the church especially, between like your mid-20s and around 40, there's this what's referred to as a deconstruction. And it's kind of this systematic kind of like tearing down of like kind of core beliefs that you grew up believing and sometimes this rebuilding of those beliefs, but maybe in a different way. Some people, some of you are like, hey, I'm 60 and I, I just started into some kind of deconstruction. <laughs> All right? It's not like uh, these, uh, these kind of things follow specific age groups. But there is a trend, especially in my age group right now, uh, where a lot of people who grew up in the church are, are either walking away from the church or, or kind of reinventing what it means for them to, to follow Jesus. And this can be a really, really good thing. This can be a really powerful thing. I think, and I was thinking of it during worship. I just was praying for you all. And I just saw, like, God as this architect kind of chipping away at this block. I was reminded of that, uh, that description Michelangelo has of when he was making the sculpture David. And he says, the, you know, that David always existed within this piece of marble. I just had to chip away to find it. And sometimes the deconstruction process can be a little bit like that. You know, getting rid of old systems of beliefs. And it can be a really great thing in that, like, you know, there's, there's questions that are asked that lead us to an understanding of why we believe what we believe. And that's a really good thing that shouldn't be discounted. And yet, there's a real danger to deconstruction, right? I think a lot of people do deconstruction without any sense of community, Right, without other followers of Jesus. And so they kind of get inside their heads and on their own in this individualized journey, it becomes a little dangerous. And we have to be a community that welcomes hard questions, right? God is not intimidated by your questions. Any question you have this morning, promise you it's not going to throw God off, 
And it's actually good that you engage in those questions. But deconstruction often happens without that sense of community. It also often happens without a Christ-centeredness. There's been some, uh, I don't know what to call them, like celebrity Christians or something that um, recently have really, in really public ways on social media, um, have kind of announced their resignation from Christianity. And one of the common things that I have seen in them is that there's all this talk about leaving the faith. And I just go, where's the talk about Jesus? Like, because there's a lot of things in the faith, you know, that I wrestle with too, right? We're all human. We're all part of a human system. But there's a, there's a Christ-centeredness that has to exist in our faith, right, in the midst of asking those questions. And again, like I said, Jesus is not intimidated by your questions. So you can ask them directly to him, right, and still maintain relationship with him. Just like you can ask questions in the midst of your friends and still maintain relationship with them. And then the last danger with deconstruction is that oftentimes there's no reconstruction on the other end. Right? Oftentimes, and we see it all over the place in our society and our culture today, there's a tearing apart of things with no rebuilding on the other side. And deconstruction is worthless without some reconstruction. You hear me? It's really easy, really easy to tear apart things. And it's a lot more difficult to build them up. It's a lot more difficult to be solution-oriented about things. Way, way easier to just poke holes in what you see, right, in the shortcomings of others. But we're, we're called to exist in this different reality, in the ones that have already changed, right? I came across this quote this week, which I just loved, by a guy named Brian Zan. He says, Jesus does not call his followers to change the world directly. That would tempt us to use or to covet coercive power. Rather, we're called to change the world indirectly by being the world already changed by Christ and attracting others to join us. This is like living according to kingdom come already, not waiting for some day, right? Not just living for that like eject button where we get to get our, you know, get out of jail free card and go to heaven, right? We're living as those who are already changed by Jesus. And that leads us to make the kind of criticism we give is constructive by nature. It's not destructive. The kind of criticism we give is solution-oriented. I was, I was uh, in this training recently. Um, I'm, an, I'm an educator, and I was in this training on, uh, on combating sexual abuse and recognizing sexual, sexual abuse um, in, in my students. And uh, just, I'm still kind of haunted by these numbers, just to share with you. By the time a kid is 18 in America, one in 10 kids will have been sexually abused. One out of every ten, which is just mind-boggling. But then you focus it in on Alaska, and some of you are probably aware of this. One in every four boys, by the time they're 18, will face sexual abuse. One in three girls, by the time they're 18. And that should do something drastic in our hearts. I'm still just kind of like, I can't get a full breath out of those numbers. It's really like changed the way I view kind of a common population or a classroom that I would teach. And in the midst of kind of, you know, discussing these numbers and kind of how we deal with them at this training that I was a part of, this one participant in the program said, you know, I just want to make it really clear. I feel like we're talking about how to combat this issue, and I just want to make sure it's clear that the, the ownership of this issue be on the perpetrators, on the ones who are actually 
you know, doing this harm. And the facilitator, just with great honor and poise, she said, I, I totally hear you. She said, as it is with, any, with dealing with any systemic issue in society, all we can do is ask ourselves, what's the part we have to play? What ownership do we have in allowing an environment like this to exist? And what can we do within our power? And inside, I could feel like, you know, Holy Spirit in me was going, yes. Like that is a builder in the midst of deconstruction. Because it's way easier, right, to point the finger. But to actually dare to build is a whole different deal. It's a whole different deal. So what I want to do today is just, I want to look at three simple things. I'm going to try to move us along here fairly quick, but three lessons that I want to bring up that I see as far as building in an age of deconstruction in the book of Nehemiah. And kind of the overview, just so you know where we're going. First is to listen to the good voices. The second is to let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And the third is to step into a story that's bigger than your own. Do you guys mind if I just pray again? I know we do a lot of praying, but it helps me kind of just recenter again. You just do that with me. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. We just, we, do, we again don't want to talk all about you without you opening up our eyes to the truth and the revelation that you want to show us. So we posture ourselves to listen to you, Holy Spirit. Would you make us builders? Would you chip away at us? And would you build your church? Yeah, we just look to you as the builder of your church. In your name we pray, amen. So um, one of the things that can be confusing about a lot of the scriptures is kind of the format of the Bible. And really simply, you have, starting at the beginning of Genesis, you have a lot of storyline, right, that kind of continues somewhat fluidly, but then every once in a while the story kind of jumps ahead or it jumps behind. And then at the end of the Old Testament, there's like all these prophets, and they're kind of like, at times, it's, it kind of reads a little bit random if you just jump into the middle of a prophet uh, and what they're saying. But it's, it can be a little confusing because the prophets sometimes are prophesying about the past and things that happened, right? They're referencing those things. Sometimes they're speaking right into the present of the storyline. Other times they're prophesying into the future about the coming of Jesus and a lot of the things that he would fulfill. But there's three prophets that actually close out the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And those guys are all prophesying in the midst of the storyline of Nehemiah and of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah kind of go together. So these prophets gave real voice to the perspective of the Israelites in the midst of their rebuilding. And I think it's so powerful just to stop and go, man, this isn't just about these guys learning to work together really well. It's about them prospering under the encouragement from the voice of God. And core to being a builder is to learn how to divide between the voices that tear you down and the voices that build you up, right? And when it comes to these prophets, like, this is a really powerful way to experience it, right? These, these prophets are at times really challenging, at times really encouraging, right? At times pointing them toward this future reality where everything is going to be made new, where the hearts of the fathers will turn to the sons and vice versa, right? So there's all this encouragement. And this is a way that we have to, if we expect to be builders, we have to be able to discern between 
the good voices and the bad voices, right? And first off, with like prophecies, you know, we love prophecy at Northgate. We love the voice of God. And I think it's so wonderful. And yet so often we can so spiritualize prophecy that it's all good, right? And that there's nothing that, anything that's, that starts off with a God said uh, is just taken as gold. But kind of what I want to offer to you is that prophecy itself is not a guarantee, it's an invitation, right? It's an invitation. And you get the chance to kind of take that word of the Lord to discern it, right, first off, and judge if it's actually something God is saying to you. And then it's not like you just kick back and let things happen, right? This is an invitation for your participation in what God is saying. And I love, there's this example in in Nehemiah chapter 6, where a prophet actually who comes to Nehemiah and is telling him, hey, you need to go into hiding. It's not the time to build right now. And look what Nehemiah says at verse 12. I sense that God hadn't sent this man. The so-called prophecy he spoke to me was the work of Tobiah and Sanballat. They had hired him. He'd been hired to scare me off, to trick me, a layman, into desecrating the temple and ruining my good reputation so they could accuse me. Sanballat and Tobiah are kind of these chief accusers. If you were here last week, Carla talked a lot about their influence, right? In the song that I sang earlier, I remember uh, the verse where my dad would say, Nehemiah, he kept this project totally mum. Because Sanballat and Tobiah didn't like to see him come. And I always thought uh, he was just like scatting or something. Like those words didn't make sense to me. Because Sanballat didn't like, and I was always like, that's weird, but okay, dad. Um, Sanballat and Tobiah. So there is this like, there is this, uh, there is this role that Nehemiah plays in the midst of this prophecy to actually discern. And I love that wording. Just I sense that God hadn't sent this man. I just sensed in my spirit. You know, the, in the book of Acts, it talks about uh, this language that I love. It says, uh, it felt good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? As you're learning to discern the voice of God, does it, does it feel good to you and to the Holy Spirit, right? That's a good kind of partnership to work on. Um, and, and the other side of this, of discerning between the good and bad voices, is, is that it doesn't just have to be this, on this higher plane of quote-unquote prophecy, right? I'm talking about encouragement. One of the most revolutionary forces on the planet is encouragement. And I love thinking of it as just simply you take courage and you're putting it into someone. Encouragement, right? I don't know how that word actually breaks down, but I like that, right? You can put courage into someone. And one of the most, uh, one of the most contrary to the flow of things you can do is to actually, when you see somebody do something good, are you ready for this? Write this down. Tell them. Just tell them they did something good. There's so often that we, we, you know, see people do amazing things and then we go on with our day. The simplicity of just saying like, hey, you did that really well. That was really cool what you did. That was really great what you said. Revolutionary, I'm telling you. And it's so simple, but for some reason we do it so little, right? One of the things in the classroom that so changed about my classroom management was this idea of positive narration. And it's this technique that they that they teach in, in the midst of courses on classroom management. And, and the way it works is just, you just start narrating the things that kids are doing right, right? Rather than correcting them, you just say, I see that Johnny has his pencil and is working on question number one. Right? I see that Jimmy is in his seat. It's always a Johnny or a Jimmy, I don't know why. 
right? I see the Jimmy in his seat and in, 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 his, uh, in his writing, question number four, right? And you watch, it's crazy because the first time I heard this, I was like, come on, this doesn't work, right? Joel is like, no, this doesn't work at all. Um, no, the, the first time I was really skeptical about this idea and then I tried it and you watched kids in the classroom kind of like watch my positive narration of Johnny and then they just immediately locked into the same reality. It's like, oh, yes, that's what we're doing. It's the same with any parenting, right? I heard this story about a, a grandpa once who's, he had, he had planted these roses, this rose garden, and his grandkids were coming over, his grandsons, and the father was describing the story, and he was going, I was just waiting for the kids to, like, go stomp in, on these roses, like this beautiful, fresh garden. I'm, like, just bracing myself. And he says, and then my dad, the grandpa, just said, hi, boys, welcome. Thank you so much for not stepping on the roses. That is so grown up of you. Thank you for doing that. And the boys are kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. We weren't going to do that. Right? But this assumption or this, like, this changing of the tie, the changing of the story toward a good voice, right? Revolutionary, I'm telling you. All right. Core to that, too, just the last thought. A lot of this just comes down to who, who you surround yourself with, right? If you're around a lot of negative, cynical voices, leave. <laughs> Don't surround yourself with those people. You, if you want to change in this regard, then find people who are solution-oriented, who are building, and just attach yourself to them, and, and you'll be amazed how transformative it is for you, all right? All right, number two, let the joy of the Lord be your strength. So as the story goes on and the walls are, are, are being built, one of the things that's rediscovered is, is the law. And these people, the, the Israelites, you remember they've returned from exile. A lot of this generation had never even seen the promised land. They, they grew up in a foreign country, right, as basically as slaves. And so as they're coming into this new land, they're reading the law, right, the law of Moses, the, the books of Moses, for the first time. And as they're listening to it, they're getting really depressed because they're realizing how far off they've become. Right? And they're grieved about it. And let's pick it up at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah said to the people, this day is holy to God, your God. Don't weep and carry on. They said this because all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. He continued, go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink. And share it with those who don't have anything. This day is holy to God. Don't feel bad. The joy of God is your strength. The Levites calmed the people. Quiet now. This is a holy day. Don't be upset. So they went off to feast, eating and drinking, and including the poor in a great celebration. Now they got it. They understood the reading that had been given to them. This is like, this is the most famous verse out of Nehemiah, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And we... It's one of those verses we kind of pluck up and use uh, when we want. But I, I believe that ending there, where it says, now they got it, they understood the reading that had been given to them. I think they finally understood the reading because they realized the heart of God toward them. You see, holiness so often is equated with this, like, this kind of like squinted brow, like tense thing, like, I am going to be holy Right? And there's a place for, like, God, rid me of all the junk, purify my heart, absolutely. And yet, what Nehemiah does here is goes, this is a holy day. Don't, like, scrunch up. 
It's a holy day. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying, feast, celebrate. Because in the same way that Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't come so often time, so often we think of Jesus wiping out, you know, the whole Old Testament and bringing this new reality, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And so often what Jesus does is he, he says like, yeah, here's the law. But he says, let me kind of explain to you the heart of what the Father was after in this, right? And that's what Nehemiah and the Levites are doing here. It's going, no, 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 you're missing the idea. Let me, let me tell you the heart of God here, right? The affection of God is for you. There's a joy that he is living in that you have the ability to enter into. And just to take it a bit further, I was really fascinated with this idea of this specific word. And you've got to think about this. Like the people felt sad because they're realizing all the sin, right, that exists in their midst. But the shift that happens is they're realizing they could walk in joy because of God's reality in their midst, because of God's heart toward them. Now follow this. The word for joy that's used here is hedva, and I'm sure I'm butchering that. But hedva is found in only two verses in the entire scriptures. Okay, it's here and in 1 Chronicles 16, 27, where it says strength and joy or strength and hedva are in his dwelling place. Now, the usual word for joy is simha, which occurs, which occurs all over the place, right? This is like all through the scriptures. But this, in this verse, hedva, it's directly connected toward God. Okay, so stick with me here for a second. It's not our joy that strengthens us. It's not some feeling that you have. It is his joy. It's this reality that God exists in. You know, you've heard it said, and uh, Redding does a great job of just this mantra, just hitting this, that God is in a good mood, right? You can't throw God off. You hear me? God is in a good mood, right? And, and our role is not to, like, stir up our good mood all the time, Right? It's to enter into his victory, into his reality, into our, uh, you know, to, to actually find our place seated in eternity with him in that victorious state, all right? When I was thinking about this word and about this idea of the joy of the Lord being our strength, I was reminded of this moment uh, that really fashioned this idea into me uh, like half a lifetime ago. I was sent and I've referenced it a few times when I spoke here, but I was sent, again, when I was 18, about 20 years ago, uh, with a group of people from this body, and we were sent on a, on a five-month kind of trip around the world, and we did different things in different places. Um, and we were in the Philippines, and I was, um, we're, in, we're in Manila, and it's a, it's a really densely populated area with a lot of extreme poverty, and we were working in a, a pretty challenging place, and I was dealing with some internal kind of angst, kind of probably some form of deconstruction, wrestling with some hard questions. And I remember leaving the feeding house where we were staying and when walking out uh, kind of toward this abandoned lot. And there's kind of tents and shacks here and there. Um, and these, these young boys who were homeless, living on the street, probably like, I don't know, seven years old or so, probably five of them, they come up and they're wanting to play with me. Right? And the language barriers there were not really connected in that sense, but they're clearly wanting to play. And I was so not ready to play. I was like, I am wrestling with my issues. This is a holy moment. Back off. Right? 
That was a really mature 18-year-old. That, that was sarcastic. And these boys, they were just persistent. They just kept kind of coming out after me. And eventually I went and I kind of sat down on this, on this uh, it was like this broken down concrete wall. And I like crossed my leg and I just turned away like this from the boys. And they all, th- they all five just lined up right next to me on the wall and they crossed their legs and they looked over at me like this. <laughs> and I'm like, I will outweigh them, right? I'm like, I'm determined to have my holy moment of wrestling and eventually I crack because little kids are way more persistent. I'm learning that now as a dad to a whole different level. And I, I eventually look at them and as I kind of turn over, they all move their heads that way. And I kind of do this and they all do this. So I stand up and I kind of do a dance and they do a little dance. And I just had this like, I had this kind of moment of like, forget it. I'm going to like leave that there. I'm going to step into this reality. And I started kind of walking down the road and they're walking behind me. And we walked down to the local McDonald's, which exists everywhere in the world. And we got ice cream cones and we ate ice cream cones on the sidewalk. And then we're walking back or skipping back playing follow the leader. And I'm doing this weird kind of walk, you know, and this string of boys is behind me. And I passed another, like the first white person I'd seen outside of the feeding center where we were at. Clearly another missionary of some kind. And it was like, still to this day, 20 years later, it's like slow motion as I lock eyes with them and I pass. And I just had this moment where I realized like, man, we have the same desire to really serve people and to love people into the kingdom of God. And yet there's something that Holy Spirit did in my heart in that moment going, it's not about your joy. It's not about your personal reality. It's stepping into the place I exist. And this joy, yeah, eventually, you know, in the same way that if you declare a truth and your mind begins to align with that truth, then your body, your spirit, your circumstances are going to align with that too. All right? You guys want one more story? (laughs) Some of you are like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Well, um, I, I just thought of this this morning and I, I was driving here and I, I was listening to a really good song and I took a little detour and it reminded me of this because I ended up at this same spot. I grew up in the valley here and I, I was in an argument in high school with my girlfriend, right? And it was, it was a serious argument. We were just, you know, going after it. Probably a similar kind of teenage angst as I was experiencing in the Philippines. A little overly dramatic but very real to us. And uh, we ended up parked at this lake, and we're in a car, and we hit the point where it's just, it went to silence, like there's nothing more that can be said, right? We're just full of angst. I should skip ahead and let you know this girl became my wife. Um, So we're talking to each other, and it goes silent, and uh, I'm just kind of staring out the window, kind of similar, like, (laughs) you know, there's this routine in my life. And uh, she's looking out the other window, and all of a sudden... Uh, I hear the car door open, and I look at her, and, and she, she opens the door, and she steps out, and she shuts it, and she just looks at me, and she smiles. And I'm like, we're arguing. What are you, what are you smiling about? And then she literally just runs right, <laughs> man, <laughs> she runs right into the water, literally just straight into the water. And I'm watching, and I'm like, wow, this is the girl I want to marry. And she totally won the argument, right? <laughs> I followed her into the water. <laughs> Right? We swam, fully clothed. And, uh, you know, but it's, it was this moment where she stepped into a different narrative. She led me out into this understanding that was beyond our years, where she's going, 
There's a bigger narrative than this, right? There's a, there's a greater joy than this. Let's step into that, right? And the argument ended. We didn't talk about it again, all right? Step out of your own joy and into the Father's joy. And this really leads us to the last point that I want to make, which is kind of what I just said. It's to step into a story bigger than your own. And this is something that, as I've learned to see the scriptures as a, as a bigger story, this has really revolutionized, uh, like, my life, honestly. Um, you know, key, or, or a core definition of postmodernity is the absence of a meta-narrative, the absence of a story of, of, like, one big overarching story, right, that ties all other stories together. So more and more common, or it's becoming more and more common for us to see these holes poked in any kind of absolute truth or meta-narrative, right? And we're left with all these fragments. But something that happened in Nehemiah as these families were learning to be builders in the midst of all this accusation, all this deconstruction, is they begin to step out of their own dramas and into a bigger narrative. Right out of this, uh, out of chapter 8 where they're having this feast, they come back together in chapter 9 and they're, continuing out of the book of the law. They're doing some repentance. They're doing some prayer. And then they launch into this prayer. And one of the most fantastic prayers in Scripture, in my opinion. And uh, I want to give you just the beginning of it. It goes like this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. They start praying. They say, Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So first they step into that glory of creation and the bigness of God, right? And then their prayer becomes this. You were the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And then for the remaining I don't know, 40 verses in this chapter, they literally pray out their story. You see, they begin to go, you're the God who took Abraham, right? Who called him out of his nothingness, out of his moon worshiping or whatever state he was in. And you gave him this promise and he wrestled with you over it, but then eventually you gave him a son and this promise would pass down to his son and to his grandson. And eventually his great-grandson Joseph would end up in Egypt and the entire family would be in Egypt. And eventually... Right? They become slaves in Egypt, and this family would be delivered from Egypt at the hand of Moses, and, and they would, God performed all these miraculous signs, and, and then eventually we get to the promised land, Joshua led us there, and we get in this spin cycle of sin until eventually a world power takes us captive and removes us from that promised land, and then 70 years later, we're finally back here at this moment in the story, and here we are. And you can see the power in this chapter of what happens when they begin to realize, oh my gosh, we've been looking this big, right? And our story is this big. And it's, and it's this far behind us and it's this far ahead. And they begin to go, oh my gosh, we are not the be-all, end-all in the story. We are part of a bigger narrative. And what we do here and now affects the generations to come. We are the fruit of those prayers that Abraham prayed when he was in the secret place. Right? We are prophets of a future that's not our future. It's someone else's. And this is so core 
to what it means for us to be followers of Jesus, to understand what it looks like to build in the midst of a time where everything is being fragmented and falling apart. These guys celebrate, they reinstate the celebration of the Feast of Booths during this time. This is a core thing they do. And the Feast of Booths was just this festival to remember the way that they wandered in the desert, to remember their story, to remember the fact that they're pilgrims on the earth, right? That they're passing through, that the story is bigger than them and bigger than what they can see. I want to I want to close here with with uh, an illustration out of uh, one of the most powerful metaphors that uh, that has struck me in recent days, um, and uh, there, it's about this uh, this cathedral in Barcelona called the Sagrada Familia. I'm sure my Spanish is wonderful there. You can see I translated it for you. It means the sacred family. So. The way this works, this, the kind of story of the Sagrada de Familia, it started in 1882, and there was this architect, his name was Gaudi, which is a pretty cool name, and it's actually been going on for 137 years. Okay, there's all sorts of mystery here. I can't, I can't fully translate to you this thing. I would encourage you to, to like go, what I did this week when I was prepping for this sermon and I thought of the Sagrada Familia I got distracted for hours watching videos about the intricacies of this cathedral. Uh, and I'm, I'm not like a big cathedral buff or anything, just so you know, all right? But I can see the whisper of Holy Spirit in this sacred family, in the building that's happening. So Gaudi starts this in 1882. They're hoping that it's going to be finished in 2026, but a lot of people don't think it will. Um, in fact, the chief architect said, hey, like the current chief architect said, Gaudi didn't finish this. I won't finish it either. It'll be someone else. But it's been going on for 137 years. And listen to this. Gaudi was not actually a practicing Catholic when he received this assignment. But he became increasingly devout as he worked on it, eventually coming to see the very structure as a metaphor for the Christian church, the sacred family. My client, Gaudi said, is not in a hurry. Isn't that good? My client is not in a hurry. Aware that the Sagrada Familia would never be finished in his lifetime, he left extensive drawings and models for a building that, when complete, would fill an entire city block. But perhaps the greatest test will be in determining its visionary creator's intentions. And think of this, like, you know, step into this metaphor with me, that this is the family of God, that this architect is, is Jesus. Listen to what the head architect says now. He says, Gaudi left us a path. Sometimes, though, we've had to work hard to find it. Sometimes it's hard for us to see, to find the truth that Jesus laid out for us. You know, the one who's actually building his church. We have to chip away at the marble to, to find the gold, to find the structure that he wants to build. God is not in a hurry. I want to actually uh, just give a couple glimpses through a, through a video or two uh, of this, and then, we'll, and then we'll close. Go ahead and roll that first one, Phil. And think again of Jesus as the architect and us as the co-laborers on his church.
I think Sagrada Familia is a project that gets under your skin. The opportunity to contribute lifts people to a different dimension. Right now we are constructing the Jesu Christ Tower, the Virgin Mary Tower and the Evangelist Towers at the same time. The Jesu Christ Tower uh, will be the tallest construction in Barcelona. 172.5 meters. Catch that part where it's the opportunity, we're going to show another one here in a second. The opportunity to contribute lifts people to other dimensions. Your opportunity to contribute to the sacred family lifts you out of your current dimension into another dimension. Let's watch this next video. It's very important, this book, because firstly, there is the, the Gaudi original plan. Always there is something to do in a cathedral. Gaudi, he worked in Safina for 43 years. He knew that he will not finish. But he designed the complete church in a little drawings with lines, sections, elevations, perspectives. When we start the construction of new elements, we study the symbolism, the meaning that Gaudí proposed, and also the different architectural elements that he left. At the moment, we are constructing the towers, which we designed actually now three years ago. And they are relatively plain, but the tops, the spires, are amazingly decorative. The very top of the Jesus Tower is actually accessible to human beings, so we will be able to go all the way up the Jesus Tower and go and look out over Barcelona, and the idea is to feel what it might be like to be closer to God. Nosotros no seremos ninguna persona que saldremos en ningún libro de historia, pero dentro nuestro sí que hay una parte que nos llena mucho de orgullo de haber podido estar aquí contribuyendo, y es que estamos ya en la recta final. Si Dios quiere, nosotros somos la generación que vamos a acabar el templo. He says, we are the kind of people that are going to end up in history books, but there's something in us, some pride that's restored as, as we do our part in the unfolding of this sacred family. And God willing, he said, catch that closing line, God willing, we will be the generation that will finish the church. Why don't you stand up with me? One of the things about the Sagrada Familia, and I haven't been there myself, I have a feeling it'll be like a pilgrimage for me one day. Um, but one of the things that, as you look more at specific sections of it, is that even in this, uh, in this picture here, it can be kind of quirky looking. It's beautiful, but it's also kind of strange at the same time. It, there's some angles where it looks almost like a Disney castle, right? And it's so intricate. I've heard that on the inside, in the pictures I've seen, there's like all these different facets that tell all these different stories. It's really complicated, really diverse, really strange and really beautiful, just like us, the sacred family, right? And we all have a specific part to play. So let me just pray for you and we'll close. Jesus, thank you that you as the master architect care more about your church than any of us ever could. And we wanna step into our part in your story, your, our part in your building of your church. I want to ask that you give us discernment to hear your voice, 
Would you give us the courage to put courage in each other? Would you teach us what it means to step into your joy and out of our own emotion? Would you free us, Holy Spirit, from the chains of our personal dramas and guide us into your story, into your bigger meta-narrative? We ask that you would guide us, Jesus, to look like you, to be like you, and to build like you in the midst of so much that's falling down. In your name we pray, amen. You want to say anything? All right.